0: Happy New Year, John.
1: Oh, Dan. Hello.
0: Hello. Happy New Year to you. How are you? I'm really good.
1: Would you like to know? Would you like to know a secret?
0: Yes, I would also like to hear about the ice.
1: Oh well, it's very icy in Seattle. It's been icy now for a while, and <clears throat> for whatever reason, my house sits about 700 feet higher than everybody else in Seattle, and so <laughs> my yard is has five six inches of snow and has for the last several days and no one else in Seattle has any snow at all. They don't know what I'm going through. Just
0: your yard has this.
1: Yeah. And I drove, I drove into, (laughs) I drove into town the other day and you know, my, my truck was completely covered in snow such that as I was driving on the freeway, it was like sending off those big clouds of, of snow smoke. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think I do. And uh, every other car on the road was completely dry. So it seemed like I had been transported (laughs) from another universe and i'm out there in the morning scraping ice off my truck and it's my truck takes 40 minutes to warm up because it's it's freezing and then i get to town and it's like nope i'm just and i'm not that's not like i'm living in the mountains i'm living in in town i just am i'm in a, a small little weather vortex ice vortex
0: it really it's i mean i know you're kidding when you say 700 feet high or whatever how is it really like up on a hill or what
1: yeah, I'm up on a hill. It's yeah, it's not 700 feet, but it's, you know, it's I'm probably what what's my altitude? I'm I probably am. You don't know your own altitude? On I the do. House, the top I I do. I think it's 360 feet. Let's okay. let's um let's see if I can let's see if I can find the altitude of my house. I don't think I'll be able to. There Here. should be a
0: way to get that listed. Does Google Maps doesn't show that, does it? Well, there is. I do have an app
1: actually, uh an altimeter app. Um like a you can get that on your phone. Yeah, it's an app for your phone. You get it and yeah. it just tells you what, your, uh, what your you're at what you're at. You got to be kidding is. me. No, get it now. I'm
0: going right now.
1: Yeah, it's um <clears throat> Yeah, what's my elevation? Or I, I mean, I think there are probably several of them, but I had I had some altimeter thing that it's pretty oh, accurate.
0: here's one called tra- Travel Altimeter Light. Here's one Altimeter Plus for 99 cents. Altimeter yep. GPS with maps, compass and barometer. Yes. Ooh. Look at these things. Right? It's pretty uh, fun. Is there one you recommend or should I just dive in?
1: Uh, you know, you you you're you're not a uh you're not
0: There's you're so not many. New. There's so oh. many. Yeah, there are. Well, I'm just going to get this one because it looks like it's got a lot of technical details. Yeah, that's exactly what you want.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say I I have a recollection of my house being at 365 feet above sea level. Uh, but, you know, we're here very close to the sea. And so All right. being, being 360 feet above sea level, you know, you got to earn
0: every one of those feet. I am at 803 feet, it says. Oh, well done. But I'm in a building. Does that no. matter? Well, yeah, that's n- some number of feet above the ground. I'm and assuming. it says it's accurate to plus or minus 52 feet, and now that's changing to 39 feet, and now it says I'm 795 feet. Oh. But that sounds a- about right. This sounds about right. It also yeah. says that I'm going at 3.9 miles per hour right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I don't know how much I can I know, trust I this particular I don't app.
1: know. I don't know. Maybe it's, me- it's me- maybe it's measuring your your brain speed.
0: <laughs> that sounds about right then. <laughs>
1: three three 3.9? Yeah i uh yeah i think plus or minus 50 feet is not enough accuracy
0: no i'm gonna delete that piece of crap yeah yeah Uh, that one that pins me down to my actual
1: (laughs) yeah right and the and you're yeah that's not i i'm speaking from experience now i think
0: you're going much faster than that i i hope i am don't don't, you move isn't the earth spinning at a thousand miles an hour around the, the equator
1: Uh, That's a question for They Might Be Giants. Uh
0: huh. (laughs) Fourth album, maybe. Uh, I
1: I feel like um, I feel like these are things that we should know. You know, when I was growing up, we had a ski a ski mountain uh, that we went to every day, and uh, not every day, but um, uh, 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 and uh, one of the nice things about Mount Aliesca, which uh, is that it was a, it was a a ski resort at sea level, um, which is very unusual, right? Because most ski resorts happen in the, in mountains and mountains are typically not close to the ocean, at least in the Americas. And so when you, when you skied at Mount Alyeska, you, you could, if you got a good run at it, you could ski all the way right to the ocean. And so the mountain itself was only 3,200 feet, which seems crazy to a lot of skiers mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't even start skiing until 9,000 feet or something, you know, like their mountains are really high, but, um, but yeah, it was just a 3,200 foot mountain total,
0: hmm. but because of so, the man who went up the hill and came down a mountain.
1: Hmm, yeah. I feel like that every day. Yeah.
0: Uh, anyway, by that, the way, it says eight hundred. This other app says eight hundred and ten feet, and it's it's settled down on it.
1: You gained twenty feet yeah. just in the in changing the apps.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, uh, the but the thing I started off to say, I'm very excited right now because I am podcasting to you live right now from my my office, from my podcasting office. Yeah, and I have not podcasted from here or done or broadcasted from here in any capacity for months.
0: You've I've been, just been traveling. You've been all over the place with the um, the little collapsible setup.
1: The collapsible setup. And I've been collapsibly uh, podcasting from my home, even when I'm home. So it's so nice to be back here. You sound great.
0: Yeah. Everything back feels here. good.
1: Back here at the old office. But the problem remains that I have, that I am podcasting to you from a Macintosh computer. Good. Okay. Um, that is from 1983, pretty sure <laughs> 2000 let's say, let's say it's from 2011, 10 or 11. Okay. And I feel pretty strongly that it is not going to work for much longer. Okay. You, oh, you yeah. know that feeling, you it, know, when you get a kid, yes. you're just like, I yes. don't know about this. This doesn't seem like it's going to keep working. Yes. Nothing works on it. Right. Cause I can't update the software. <laughs>
0: And right, you're you're not going to be able to, uh, to install any of the newer. I'm not sure I'd need to know the model, but you certainly cannot install Sierra. Probably no. not El Capitan. Pr- maybe no. the one before that. Barely. And then it's going to run like uh, like molasses anyway.
1: I don't want that. I can't look at anything. I can There, you know, it won't it won't support Flash plugins. But of course, I consider that a gift. <laughs> but there's just a there's just a sense of like. Oh boy. The writing's on the wall here, but that means I have to buy a new computer. And I know you buy a new computer every week or two, but I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time buying a new computer. It's very hard. It's difficult work.
0: I I totally agree with you. And right now there, there's not that much that in the Mac space that I would want to buy. I remember the day when every computer that Apple came out with desktop, iMac, Mac pro, Laptop, whatever. I'm like, yeah, I gotta get that. I want that. I want that. I want that. Now, they're really, I mean, iMacs are really nice. Yeah. Um, but I don't like the direction they've gone with the laptops. Generally speaking, their desktop machines, which is just really besides the iMac is the Mac Pro. It that thing is, is no one wants that.
2: Is I that just right? Sold. Why
0: does no one want that? I just sold mine. Um, I, I saw that you sold it, but I wasn't sure why. Because, uh, for me, it. Well, first of all, they're not. You know, they used to, the, the the desktop Macs used to be the, there were two. There was the iMac, and, which was for regular people.
1: Right. For and kids, then,
0: I used to say. For kids. And then there was the Mac Pro, which sat under your desk, and it was this big aluminum yeah, the, thing that you that could. was for pros. You could throw tons of hard drives in it. You could throw all kinds of video cards in it. You could turn tons of RAM. Hot rod it. Hot rod it. And they changed that when they got the other. Uh, they made the new, in, I think it was 2013, they made the, the what people call the trash can or the cylindrical Mac Pro.
1: Right, that was two toilet paper rolls wrapped in foil.
0: <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. And there, I got one of those because at the time we were doing a bunch of video work. And without going to a PC, it was the only way that we could get a whole bunch of video inputs over like these Thunderbolt adapters. It was the only way we could get like three or four of them at one time. And, uh, and do the video stuff that we were doing. And uh, it was a fine computer, but I wanted to get my son a uh, a, a computer because he's gotten very into the computer games. And it was coming around to Christmas and his birthday are both in December, and I thought, you know, I'll get him like a nice, uh, a nice PC because that's where all the games are still. Right. And uh, all the games he wants anyway. And I'll get him that. And, you know, I... I said, I'll just, I use my laptop most of the time. I'm not really using this uh, this Mac Pro, and I sold it. I didn't get what I paid for for it, but they still have a decent value. But as I was investigating, like, what would I get with the money that I made from selling it? I couldn't find a Mac that I wanted to get. I'm still on my 2013 MacBook, which is a couple of years newer mm-hmm. than yours, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it was not the top-of-the-line MacBook back then. It It's anything but... Right now, but I don't, I don't like any of their new computers. I don't really know. I don't know what I'm going to do. What are you going to get?
1: Well, right. I'm not, I'm, I'm not prepared to abandon the Apple brand yet. No. Um, but you know, the problem when I, so I took my daughter Christmas shopping, uh, because she's at the age where I felt like you need to buy a present for everybody. I mean, you don't have any money and you don't know what money is, but I'll, I'll be the money. But you need to go to the store and recognize that you're buying presents for your people. And she was like, very matter of fact, she was like, okay. So I'm full of dread because it's Christmas time and we're going to the shopping center and I'm just, you know, I can just picture us just on this death march going from store to store. Not knowing what to do, just like oh god, you know, oh can't decide because this is how I go to this is how I shop, right? I go to the I go to a store, like no one will go to Costco with me anymore because I insist on going up and down every row of Costco
0: and looking at everything. No, you have to? I'm absolutely one thousand percent behind you.
1: Yeah, you can't go into Costco and go beeline right to what you're trying to buy and leave.
0: I mean, that is typically though. That's the way that a guy a guy says, "I'm I need a new pair of jeans." Go to the store that sells the jeans. Walk to that section. Say, "Well, I want them to be blue." Here's the section of blue. This is my size. Out.
1: Yeah, but with Costco,
0: yeah. I'm totally with you. You got to look at the everything. You got to look at the lobsters. You got to look at the got to look at the lobsters.
1: Everything. everything. Yeah. The the guy that you're describing is a guy that's still wearing his college colors when he's 79 years old. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not. I'm not this guy. I want to. I want to see the lobsters. I want to see every lobster. So I take her to the. I take her to the mall and we're walking along Do do and I'm just not even sure. I'm, I, I've budgeted 11 hours for this trip and I'm not even sure where to start. <laughs> we're walking along and she looks across the mall at a little store and she goes, oh, that would be perfect for person X. And she points to something on a mannequin in the front window of a store and I walk over with her and I'm like, hmm, you know what? That would be perfect for that person. And we go in the store, and they have it in in the right size. And uh, my kid is already on to the next thing, oh. right? She's just like, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! You know, are you sure about this? You want to look around? And she looks at me like, what? No, I found the perfect thing for that person. Le- next.
0: That's so is I
1: impressive. It, and I'm like basically chasing her down the mall with the bag and the receipt. And she we walk along, and we walk into a uh, another store, and she's like, hmm, I think I'll find something you know, for a person, why in this door? And she walks to the back and she finds the right aisle. She walks down the middle and there's like 80 things representing the category of things that she's trying to look at. And she looks along the way and she says, that's the one. And I'm like, wow, that's great. And it is, you know, it's the one, but I'm like, shouldn't you sit and look at every one of these and compare and contrast them and make sure that this is the, actually the one you want. And she's already moving wow she's like that one's perfect and so we shop is she
0: normally this decisive
1: well i've never put her in a position where it's like all right we're at the store and we we need to get eight things but
0: like if you were if you ask her do you want chicken or do you want a burger like is she like i want the burger or is she like i don't know
1: no 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 she's always she she knows what she wants i mean and the problem with food is what do you want cheese quesadilla well, what if I refuse to buy you <laughs> your one thousandth cheese quesadilla and insist that you try a different thing? Okay, cheese pizza. You know, there's no. It's not like she has this this incredible palate to choose from in food. So it's a. I mean, she does. I'd buy her anything, but she only sees cheese and bread. Right. But uh, so I've never give, I've never been in a situation because a mall just mystifies me. It just creates in me a sense of like. I mean, I will spend four hours in a store and walk out without having bought a thing. Mm, and yeah. I go to the Mac store and do this all the time. I walk around, I put my hands on every single thing in the store. I ask 40 questions of the nice people in the polo shirts. Generally, I have at least one f- personal friend, if not like a, a pretty close personal friend who works at the Mac store mm-hmm. or at for Apple in some capacity. And I'm buzzing them with questions and I'm, keeping people from their other work and then at the end of the day i i reduce it down to like four possible options and then i make no decision i leave and i and i stay away for a month it's not like i come back the next day like i'm ready you know and so anyway uh my little girl and i we buy all of her christmas presents in the space of 45 minutes such that the appointments that i had canceled because i knew i had to go on this dread march yeah i actually was able to call the people back up and say you know what i don't need to cancel i can be there still and i just didn't i i just couldn't like even put it all together how and she was the the picture of calm and every present at, landed perfectly every person you know, uh, who received one of her presents was like, Oh my gosh, it's so perfect. And then they looked at me like nicely done. Wow. And I was like, I had nothing to do with it. I, I was standing there like a dumb wallet, like a talking wallet. I didn't. And they're they're like, no, you, you must've helped her pick this wonderful thing. And I'm like, sorry. Wow. I I was trying to argue with her about it because I didn't believe that she could make a decision that fast. So I want to get a, I'm not ready to abandon the Apple line. No, but nobody seems happy with them anymore. I don't know enough to be happy or sad. Mm-hmm. I was sad when they took away the DVD reader.
0: Yeah, I get them separate now.
1: Yeah, nobody, nobody likes the. I don't know the uh, remote control headphones or something. I, I I can't keep it all straight. I've decided on Twitter that I'm not gonna. I'm I'm not following any journalists anymore. Okay. There's there's one guy uh, for the New York Times. That I like, uh, who's actually a listener, uh, he's a podcast listener, uh, that I'm going to, that I'm going to stay with. But like I was following numerous sort of editorialists and individual journalists and, uh, and I, they're just not giving me anything anymore. I feel like they're, they're, they're part of the problem, not the solution. So Uh, now I've decided that this is at least the first half of the year is going to be InfoSec Twitter
0: for me. InfoSec Twitter. I'm only following infosec nerds. Infosec, yeah. Se- infosec. Okay. Um, I mean that makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, because it seems like there there's something going on over there in the infosec
0: yeah uh, world, right?
1: You know, I used to be on 4chan. Of course, lot, yeah. Like, uh, spent a lot of time on 4chan, and so I knew, and I used to read the magazine Twenty Six Hundred.
0: Oh yeah. Sure. Uh, the hacker. Magazine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Back when it was, you know, it was just like a little broad, it was like stapled together. Uh-huh. Right. Just, yep. It, it looked like it had been photocopied, a uh, color copier. I didn't understand the computer maths of it, but I liked the intrigue. And now the InfoSec crew, the crowd of people who are like, hack, like, let's call them hackers. Let's call them Mr. Robots. Yeah. I don't know what they're, I don't understand how they're, I don't, I don't get their computer maths, like I say, but I do get what they're doing and the ones that can speak English. And I don't mean that as like uh, the ones that aren't foreign, but I mean the ones that know how to speak to lay people. Right. Um, explain their trail well enough when they're not being cloak and dagger that I can follow, you know, like, Oh, I get it. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. And all of a sudden it's opening my mind a little bit to the fact that not everybody's building apps there's a whole there's like some skullduggery yeah happening that is <clears throat> super interesting to me and it's not just keanu reeves rewriting the encryption and all of a sudden the the vault door opens there's a lot of detectiveing and there's a lot of journalistic journalisming all wrapped up into this weird infosec universe. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking for. Recommend- so you are you
0: actively unfollowing people, or you're just this is just not what you're into, what you're going to read.
1: Do you know what, Dan? I'm actively unfollowing people. Are you really? Yeah I, I I think I we talked about it a little. You know, after the election, I realized that I didn't know anything. Right. right. And I and I thought I had known a lot of things. I thought I was pretty darn smart about stuff Mm -hmm. turns out I wasn't and I became immediately super impatient with people that continued to think that they knew all about stuff even though they'd just been proved entirely wrong about everything and it's it's really easy I think for a lot of people to pivot and to incorporate you know the lesson is hi you were wrong you were wrong about everything and they pivot and they say, "Well, I wasn't wrong. I'm. I. I know that I wasn't wrong about my all the premises I had. And so the only the only way I was wrong is that the that the that the premises I had did not produce the end result I thought was going to happen. You know, like the election didn't turn out the way it did. It didn't turn out the way I expected because X. And in a lot of cases, the popular vote." is the thing that just allows everyone to say, no, I was right all along. She actually won the popular vote and therefore I was right. And I can maintain my certitude Mm. in the face of the fact that none of us were right. You know, I mean, we were all continually amazed at what was happening, but none of us could have foreseen the world that we're living in now. Anyway, I can't keep reading editorials uh, that are, you know, that are condescendingly lecturing us about what we need to do next from people that didn't, you know, that, that, that I don't think their premises were correct. I don't think my premises were correct. And now I'm just, I just, it's, I'm not abandoning the political process. I'm not, not listening. I just don't want to read editorials from people. I don't, uh, Uh, from editorials from people that I don't think have reflected enough. And I know it's their job, right? They need to jump right back in and start telling people what, what to think and what they think. But I still feel like if you are on the, if you're on the American left right now and you're not really, really staring at your shoes and saying, how far back do I need to go in my set of assumptions before I can find the before I can find some solid ground, yeah, like back up out of this musk, this musk egg and get back to some, some solid dirt where what I, what I believe and what is true are, are close enough. And I think that's true if you're on the American right too, because I don't think anybody over there f- foresaw what was happening. I don't think so. So everybody needs to just walk it back a little bit and f- Get back to where the solid ground is because we're out here now in a you know we're walking through marshmallow fluff marshmallow fluff and white bread uh and we're knee, knee deep in it, so I feel like the infosec people <laughs> are delivering me some they both have some interesting data and they also have a little bit of it's it's one of the instances where the where that um the whole pretense of libertarianism mm-hmm. that i think is just it's not a cancer upon the land it's just like a greasy film on a windshield like libertarianism just feels like it feels like the inevitable thing that happens when you're 22 years old and you think you know what i'm only going to buy one color shirt and if i just buy one color of shirt then all my, then I don't have to think about you don't fashion. Have to match
0: anything anymore.
1: Yeah, and I don't have to. And everybody knows I'm the guy in the in the green shirt guy, and I don't have to think. And and so I've saved all that thinking, and I can use that brain power elsewhere. It's mm-hmm. the it's the um, well, we
0: talked about this back on uh, one of the earlier episodes where we talked about sort of minimalism, and you were saying that you detested you detested the concept of minimalism, uh, because one of the pretenses is that. I will no longer have to focus on these things that I have and decisions that I make and I will spend the CPU's cycles on other things and your your argument was no you won't. Right. <laughs> well, and yeah, right, it's the it's the the
1: soylent notion. If I just if I put all the food all the nutrition I need into a beverage, soylent, if I can just take my astronaut pill that has a whole turkey dinner in it. Then I can spend more time sitting at my computer and that, and it's just like, you guys, come on. Stopping and taking a break for dinner is what makes you better at doing computers later. You don't get better at doing computers by just doing computers. You'd get better at doing computers by doing other things too. That's, I mean, you, everyone needs some amount of well-roundedness, some amount of sleep, eat, sex. So, anyway the, the the grease on the windshield that is the reductionist mentality that all we need to do is x and then all our problems will be solved is um is the thing that infuriates me but what i like about the infosec crowd is that they're they genuinely seem whether they're nonpartisan or not they're certainly not partisan at the level of party politics and they're not you know they they they're even like agnostic to a degree at the level of of international politics. You know they don't seem to care whether Assange. I mean they they don't like Assange because they think he's a because they think he's a limp dick. You know they don't like him because they think he's a because uh, they think he's a, a fraud. But they're but it ha- I guess what I mean is I I don't understand deeply the infosec the ethical universe that lives within the larger infosec argument within itself inside the cabin. But I know there is one and I'm peering in from outside and I'm trying to figure out like what the sides are, who the teams are. And, um, and I like that. I like the, I like it. It's sort of a new kind of geopolitics. It's an, it's like an, I've spent my whole life, In a bi, like a bicameral world, right? My people were Democrats. Right. We didn't like Republicans. Democrats cared about the little guy. Republicans only cared about money. Mm -hmm. That was the world that I grew up in as a kid. And then when Republicans started to become synonymous with evangelicals, it wasn't so easy to say all they care about is money. Because I mean, all through when I was growing up, it was just like, yeah, Republicans are all business people. They're all like East Coast business people, and they all they care about is money. And Democrats are trying to trying to build dams and give people jobs. You know, we were like the we we cared, but by the late '80s, it was like, well, no, Republicans want to turn back time. Republicans want to. Um, they might be concerned with the little guy, but they're lying to him. They're lying to the little thing. okay, and, and telling him that we can restore, you know, we can restore the little guy to, to the social place he had, the social place his grandfather had. Uh, whereas the Democrats are trying to build a big tent for every kind of person. And the, 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 the story changed a little bit, right? It wasn't just what it was when I was a kid. It had morphed. And now the Democrats cared about all kinds of people, all different sizes and shapes and colors. And we were trying to make a more equitable culture or one that, you know, that was a true melting pot. And the Republicans didn't want that. They wanted to cling to, uh, to the way things had been and, But still it was a world of, it was a world of these and those, you know, and even as I was more sophisticated and understood that there was a wide, wide uh, world out there and you couldn't pigeonhole and it wasn't just a, a black and white situation. I mean, this all happened early in the Reagan administration for me, but it's continually an evolution, right? It's very hard in these times to say... It was very hard for me to say, you know, I'm a gun owner right? and I believe the second amendment is an anachronism. I believe that they had no way of knowing about assault rifles, but I also believe it's there for a reason. You know, there's nothing in the constitution that I am ready to just X out with a red pen. And so I have had to chart my own course on, on the gun situation because I don't believe in unrestricted gun ownership. I right. think that you should have, uh, you should have to earn a license. You should have to renew your license. You should register your guns. I think all of those things. Um, but I also think that you should, I uh, think that, uh, you know, owning guns isn't that big of a deal. And you know, I don't, um, and I, and I understand the statistics that if you have a gun in your house, that it's a thousand times more likely that there's going to be a gun death. But like, I'm not, I don't hyperventilate about guns. It's like, yeah, guns. And if you go out into the rest of the country and guns are just like, they're lying all over the ground. I mean, you're in Texas, you know yeah. what it is. Yeah. You have to step over a gun to get into the grocery store. And it's just like, yeah, all right. I mean, those like people out there, they're, they like, like it's their toys. You know, they're playing with their guns. When I was a little kid, all I did was play guns. And what, what it seems to me, like all the, you know, all the sort of red staters, they still like to play guns. It's not that big of a deal. And to be, to live in my little liberal bubble, to express anything other than, um, other than a desire to restrict the ownership of guns as much as possible, mm-hmm. no one thinks that they can get rid of guns. But they, but they, but there's no amount of nobody's ever enthused to hear me say, "Well, you know, I own some guns." Like that just puts a cast a pall on the cocktail party. So as you as you try and figure out like how you fit into this 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 world of like left and right and you figure oh you know i do kind of have some i do have some gray area feelings about this or about that i mean there i don't there's no the reason that we argue so oppositionally is because we have somehow eliminated the ability to talk in the middle um but but to watch the info sectors at one remove where they're not they're not interested in how the democratic socialist party is going to transform the democratic party. They are in this like cyber future already where it really, it it does have a science fiction aspect of it where like control of information and control of access are the, are bigger issues and the end goal like how you use that data, how you utilize that access, maybe isn't even their problem.
0: Yeah,
1: you know they're like they're at the level of like they're, I guess they're thinking more like, um, like military people. They just want to secure the battlefield, or they want to get the they want to get the high ground. They want to get the 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 infosec people. Yeah, yeah, or I mean. But there's no, there's, it's not like there's a a top-down leadership, right? There, it's like an insurgency kind of mentality. There's nobody directing it, but everybody's thinking like a little general, like, how do I get in? How do I secure? How do I, um, how do I master the terrain? And, but everybody's a mercenary, right? They're working for this person and then they get hired over here by the, by the people that, you know, their white hat, their black hat. It's a, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird flip of the traditional sort of military hierarchy where all the soldiers aren't working for anybody anymore. They're all working for themselves. I don't know. I'm still like, i it's not like I'm trying to write an article for wired magazine or anything, but I'm just like, I'm just trying to parse it. And I'm watching, I'm watching them at a, at a distance. Kind of like I used to lurk on 4chan. I didn't have, I didn't have. Two fucking ideas about what most of those conversations were. I just hoped I would never get doxxed with a thousand pizza boxes.
0: Mm. That happens. But now, but
1: now that's my, that's my, that's my spring. Infosec
0: This is your main, your main thing.
1: This is what I, I'm, I'm unfollowing journalists. I don't want to hear about it. I don't, you know what? I'm about to unfollow some comedians cause they're not fucking funny either
0: tired of hearing comedians. Do you think comedians are funny in general? Good question. Like are you the are you the kind of guy who would go and say oh such and such as they're coming here to the thing I'm going to go you know Saturday night I'm going to go and see their show oh, comedian. No, 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 no,
1: no, no, but I don't go to I, yeah, I'm not looking to be entertained that way. Not Not only not by comedians but Yeah, I'm not. What if
0: if your girlfriend is like, "Come on with me, John." This is really guy. A guy like he's hilarious. It'd be fun. Fun night. Are you like, you know what, you go have fun, or are you going to go and just Mm. get through it?
1: You know, I've been in show business a long time, so it's very hard for me to fully transition to the attitude of "Eh, I don't really want to go to a show. Right. You know, like going to shows, I count on people to go to shows because I put on shows and i also don't want to i don't want to lose the connection to the world of shows both going to and doing so no i will go out to a show but like stand up comedy is as we all know it's excruciating and if you go in with a very low threshold of expectation you'll have a great time because yeah every you know Every third joke, some you know, in some cases doesn't really work. Um, you go to a lot of comedy shows and there's not a single joke in the entire night that works. But if your if your threshold is low, like when you go to alternative comedy shows and most of the people in the audience are also members of that comedy scene. Mm -hmm you go to a show where the, it's a really small room and there's 50 people in the audience and you get the good feeling that 35 of them are also comedians or comedians, um, right. Uh, significant others. And so the, the comedian gets up on stage and says, on my way over here, I saw a dog and I said, what's up dog. And everybody <laughs> in the uh, audience is like,
2: <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh, stop it. Stop it.
1: And it's like, Okay, that was not good joke. And your laughter is conspicuously uncomfortably uh, inappropriate. Yeah. Like over too the much. top it's too to much. the point that you are you audience members are also ruining this for me. But I'll go. I'll go to I'll go to that shit. I'll I'll go see it. Do I think comedians are funny? Yeah, some comedians are super 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 funny. They're the great they're great gifts to the world. Um, and I'm not the first to have noted that the last five years or so, stand-up comedy has has become the new rock and roll. Nobody wants to pick up a guitar and be a rock musician anymore. Everybody yeah. wants to be a stand-up comic, and most people aren't funny, Dan. Yeah. They're just not funny. No, they don't no. understand. They don't understand, and they don't understand. They're not funny. They like the look of being a comedian. They like the time. They think it's easy, and and they are making the world a worse place. <laughs> but that was true of all the people that were picking up guitars twenty years ago. Sure. You know, yeah. they weren't good musicians, but uh, in a lot of cases, you know, it, it's the it's the kids that have enough money that they can pick up a guitar and spend five years you know, with a band where they're also trying to get shows the same way you are. And they're also, um, you know, putting out records the same way that you are, but they have, they have enough money that they can afford to make a record that sounds good. They have enough money that their, their clothes are good when they're on stage. They are, you know, they're fit looking. And so they, they kind of sow doubt in everyone. Because every once in a while you get one that even makes it somewhere. Right. But they're not inspired and they, they don't have to worry. You know, they end up uh, when their time as a rock musician is through, they have a real soft landing somewhere. They, they uh, go into the family business or whatever it is. They, you know, they, they don't, they never struggle. And I see a lot of people in the comedy scene like that too. They're just like, I'm going to do this for a while instead of getting a job, but I'll eventually get a job at my dad's law firm. (laughs) And it's like, ah, you guys just get out of the way there. You know, there are people that really want this and, um, they're motivated by talent and, and, uh, and like motivated by tremendous mental illness, even, um, and they're not just they're not just tourists here. They're not just doing this because it's because it seems cute or better. Or like you know, I, I always used to have a a real suspicion of John Spencer, the John Spencer Blues explosion, who were a very, very cool band in the early 90s. And John Spencer was this beautiful guy. And he also had a band called Boss Hog with his very beautiful roommate and they were all that whole little cult, uh, the culture. I'm sorry. Little gang of people that orbited around John Spencer. They were all beautiful and they were all like beautifully on heroin too. They were all like <laughs> on heroin and beautiful and, you know, riding motorcycles up the stairs of their of their warehouse loft in New York city. And just generally like just being the being multi-purpose role models to a generation of people that thought that being beautiful was some was also some kind of punk, you know, and John Spencer's music was like some, it was like, I mean, his band was called the blues explosion. It sounded like the blues exploded but they were huge. They would come out to Seattle and people were like, Oh my God. And it was like the cool, it wasn't huge. Uh, it wasn't mainstream. It was huge within the, within the cool kids. Everybody went to see John Spencer. It was so amazing. He was love interest. He was like, <laughs> he was uh he was the sexy bad boy of, of a, of a scene where everybody was sort of, uh, where everybody was wearing a loser t-shirt, you know? And I just stood in the back of the room like, ugh, you're too pretty. You're too pretty and you're too rich because there's no way making this kind of dumb blues music you can afford to ride a motorcycle up the stairs of a Soho loft. What was that? How did,
0: what was his story? What was his thing?
1: Ah, There's so many rich kids, Dan. You don't even have, they don't even have stories. I mean, the Beastie Boys were rich kids, but they had, and, and the Strokes. Those guys, those are two examples of New York City bands that were very cool who came out of a thing where their parents were just rich as fuck. And rich and also already in the entertainment business. So, you know, the Beastie Boys ended up changing the universe, but in the very early days, it was like, we want to be in hip-hop. and And they were, but, you know, they were because they could, I mean, I think they were actually like, on the street at hip hop shows, but they had the, in some ways money allowed them to presume they were cool when they were 13, 14 years old. You know, they didn't have to, they didn't have any doubt um, because money can remove doubt. The strokes too. I mean, and and I think both the, I think the music of the Beastie Boys and the music of the strokes is amazing. I don't, I, I don't th- feel that they weren't,
0: yeah, in other words, you're not holding inspired. it against them that they came from money or whatever.
1: No, I think what I think the I think my issue with it always was that if you are if you don't have money and you are measuring yourself and your own accomplishments against the beastie boys or against the strokes. Right. And saying, you know, what you know, what I'm twenty-four, the strokes are twenty-four. Why the hell are the strokes so great and i'm just like working at a coffee cart like how did they do it and all that stuff you just have to take into consideration that it's easier for some people um and it's not just easier because their ideas are and your ideas are the same it's just they had the money to make the record no it's easier way way up the stream there they had the luxury of even being able to sit around and and I guess the biggest luxury is assuming that you belong. That's the biggest luxury. That's what people talk about now when they, when they talk about privilege, right? It's just starting out with the assumption that you belong and that your ideas are good. And a lot of people don't, don't start with that assumption. You know, they start with no assumptions or they start with an assumption that they're going to be rejected. Right. And that's a much that that's a, a, it creates an obstacle that you have to get over before you even are, before you lift the pencil for the first time. And that obstacle, a lot of times we don't recognize or we don't, we don't give it proper weight when we, when we look at our own lives and say, what have I tried to overcome? You know, I haven't overcome anything. Well, I mean, you had to overcome a lot. And, and the biggest thing you have to over uh, overcome is like, am I welcome? Is, is, and, and I think, I think there are a lot of people in art and in business who the fact that they feel unwelcome is a, is a motivator. Like they're going to, they're going to kick down the door, but that's not true for most people. Most people don't, don't want to kick down the door. They want the, they want somebody to open the door and say, come on in mm-hmm. and money provides that opportunity. And that was, you know, I, John Spencer was as good as everybody said he was. We would all be listening to John Spencer now. And maybe I, there might be some people on this, listening to this show who are like, I love John Spencer. And maybe John Spencer's listening to the show and he's going to write me a, he's going to DM me and he's going to say, Hey, man, why are you so mean? Yeah,
0: like, why are you coming down so hard on me and my, my kinfolk?
1: It was envy, John. Listen, Mr. Spencer, (laughs) I envied what I thought was all of the amazing sex parties that you were having in your, giant drafty New York City warehouses when I was paying three twenty five a month for for an apartment with a bathroom down the hall. It was envy. I still envy you, John.
0: We would like to thank our sponsor this week. It's Mac Weldon. They're over at MacWeldon.com. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I just bought some stuff over there. Uh it's so easy to do. You get to get you get in the site, you look around and it they've made it simple. They've made it so simple. It's comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies and sweatpants. And that's it. That's all they do. And they even have this really cool line that John uh, is especially a big fan of of silver underwear and shirts. What makes them special is they're naturally antimicrobial. They have real silver in them, and they, that basically means they eliminate odor. They're antimicrobial, and uh, and and they're wonderful, super comfortable. And that's what Mack Weldon is all about. These things look good, but they are super comfortable. And if you don't agree, if you if you don't uh, agree with that, you get it. You don't think they're comfortable? That's fine. You don't like your first pair? You can keep it, and they'll still refund you, no questions asked. That's how confident they are. Take it from me, this stuff is very comfortable. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't say that if I didn't totally believe it. I love their stuff. And you can uh, you can go try it out. I recommend that you start out. They have, if you're a hoodie person, they have hoodies. They have uh, really, really awesome, like, sweatpants, perfect for wearing around, around the house. Uh, you can go exercise in them. I mean, start with that. They've also got really good sweatshirts, too. I feel like the sweatshirt... Is uh, is undervalued? It's underrated. The sweatshirt has a power that no other garment has. You can go understand what I mean by going to Mac Weldon, M A C K W E L D O N, MacWeldon You will get twenty percent off using the promo code Roadwork. So go use that code Roadwork, all one word. Get twenty percent off your next order. Thank you very much to Mac Weldon for supporting this program. I have a message to deliver to you, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shannon says hi. Oh, hi Shannon. Was that the extent of the message? Yeah. That's all she wanted me to relay. Shannon says hi. Shannon says hi. I was in the mighty fine burgers. Mighty fine. On uh Sunday night. And I was walking in and she was walking out and she had her uh boyfriend or husband or significant other with her male and accompanist they were there's a... i I'm sure you've been to a mighty fine, but for the people who haven't there's uh there's like a an airlock almost you know how you ever you go in, you go in a place where there's the the door to the outside and then the door to the inside and there's that sort of indoor space in between the two mhm sort of a, yeah, you just, you go in and, and then you you take another two steps and then you're in the real, the real restaurant. Before that, yeah. it's just a little entryway where people are coming and going. Yeah. It's maybe like a, you know, seven foot by seven foot enclosure area.
1: Yeah, it seems like a place like that, the restaurant is maintaining positive pressure. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh. I, I walked through in, and I was in, so I was in the antechamber and they were already in the antechamber sort of standing next to each other, staring at me. They saw you coming. They saw me coming in, I guess. And Shannon said, Dan Benjamin.
1: Oh, so now you're trapped in the airlock. Yeah, but it was fun. I
0: love, I love this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she, she, I said, yes. She said, "Dear Dan Benjamin. I said, yes. She said, "Nice to meet you," and then she started to leave. That both of them started to leave. I said, "Well, wait. Who who are you?" And uh, she said, I, "Nobody. I'm oh. nobody. I'm just a listener."
1: Oh, Shannon.
0: And I said, well, <laughs> "I said no. I said, would tell me your name, please.' Mm-hmm. I said, Let's talk." And uh, and so her her name was Shannon, and her man uh, was uh, also familiar with. Uh, and and apparently, I said, "Listen, I said, um, uh, I said I'm going to be recording with John uh, later in the week." Because she right away said she loved you know all the great that kind of thing, yep. and uh, and I said, "Do you want me to say anything to John for you?" And she said, "I oh, will just tell him Shannon says hi," <laughs> and she says she knows you from the cruises.
1: Oh, well, she now knows you, you from have the cruises. Now you have uh, you. Significantly limited the pool of people you mm-hmm. can be talking about. <laughs> yeah, because when you say Shannon says hi, yeah.
0: I'm that's thinking, all. But that specifically, she only wanted me to say that. Right. I've said a lot extra right now.
1: And you know, I know, I know fifty Shannons. I could sit here with a piece of paper and write out fifty Shannons I know. I bet. Men, men and women. Yeah. So I'm like Shannon says hi, and even in Texas, I probably know four Shannons. But now when you say from the cruise, from the, she
0: knows you from the cruise.
1: Now I have a very much clearer picture of the Shannon, uh, and of, the uh, Shannon's, uh, so you,
0: you've, male friend. You've zeroed in on who this is.
1: I believe I have a, I believe I have the, I have the Shannon in mind. All right. Um, she's a regular Joko cruiser. Yeah. I think maybe a, um, a chronic, maybe like a, what what I guess would be called a seven timer coming up this year. Right. We've been doing it seven. Can that be true? Six or seven years. Uh, I think she's been on every cruise. um,
0: but she's a good friend, right? I mean, very, very nice person. And she, then later, uh, she and the man tweeted to me and said, said some nice things on Twitter too. Oh, that's, but I wanted to, I had it on. I have two things that I wanted to talk to you about this week. That was number one. So right, I just well, want to make sure I get it in there before. I'm you glad know.
1: you did. I'm and I'm. It's always nice to. Uh, it's always nice to see how small the world is. Yeah. Uh, and see, like, in a in a country of 350 million people, <laughs> uh, that a body meets a body coming through the rye.
2: Yeah.
0: Yes. <laughs> uh,
1: now, what is the other thing that you were that you wanted
0: to say? Well, this is a question for you as a uh, as a uh, pr- as a performer. I have a yeah. question for you on, on something that's kind of one of the things I know both you and I have a, we have an understated or understood rather an understood rule about the show that we make every attempt to make every single episode and every topic on every episode timeless. So generally, in, hopefully. Yeah. In in a year, in 10 years, in a hundred years, everything we say will be just as important and relevant you know as it was when we first said it in 2000 now 2017
1: yeah i hope that a 100 years from now everything uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff on these podcasts that will be seen to have been prescient right and most uh,
0: most of it i think yeah yeah inshallah <laughs> so
1: <laughs> your question then well
0: my question is in a in taking a step away from that rule if i may and tr- to begin with a topic that is a current event, but that I feel we could move into the territory of timelessness. Mariah Carey uh, did some kind of thing on New Year's, where she was supposed to be singing. I didn't watch it. I watched a YouTube of it later. She's doing her thing up on stage. She's supposed to be singing, uh, and instead of her singing, there's a the problem with the with the the track that she was supposed to be lip syncing to apparently, yeah, and so there was no there was no song at all, and so at first she just sort of walked around the stage occasionally talking and and kind of complaining about how things weren't going well mm-hmm. and then she went to the second I guess there is a a second uh performance a second piece that she was supposed to do, and this time there was. The background track playing, but something else was wrong, and so she, instead of really singing, she sort of walked around with the microphone away from her face while her voice was projected out of the loudspeakers, singing the song. Oh dear! And I always feel bad whenever I see something like this happen. Um, yeah. But here's my question: I know that um, you you usually do not rely on a pre-recorded audio track when you perform. That's true and um there are there seem to be people that do and i i've often heard that the the reason given that sometimes the reason people will will do this it especially tends to be the sort of the um, like i i don't know if there's a category of pop music that seems to really rely heavily on this but I've heard that the reason they do it is because in many cases they're dancing and they're doing these elaborate sort of dance numbers where it would be essentially impossible to dance and move and choreo- in a choreographed way the way that they are uh, and, and also sing at the same time. But then you have other people like we talked about here on the show, like Adele, who they're there to sing and they're, they're great singers and they're singing. And they're not there to dance or to put on that kind of performance. Their performance is their voice. It is their it is their their song and their singing. And so, my question to you is, as a, as an artist, as a performer, I wanted to know your take first. If you've seen this, if you haven't seen it, you know what's your take on this in general? And it, does it feel to you the way it feels to me that it's? a horrible uh, lie that's being perpetrated on people and that for whatever reason, the people uh, accept the pretense of this lie when clearly they know that these performers are lip syncing and they're not really getting a true show. They're just getting someone up there pantomiming things that, that they're not outraged and they should be. And that's how I feel about it. What do you, what do you think care to comment?
1: Hmm. I haven't seen it. I hadn't heard about it, but I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the phenomenon. Of course.
2: Yeah. When,
1: when, uh, when bands first started to what we would, what we called run tracks. Mm.
2: Um,
1: and, and what's interesting is I, I did a tour one time, um, with a band that was running tracks.
0: So what is running tracks?
1: Well, it just means that you have computers that are a big part of your show. There's a person on the tour whose job it is to sit sometimes more than one person to sit at a bank of computers and, the drummer has uh headphones or an ear piece yeah. and the beginning of every song, you know, the songs are queued up. Your set list is queued up. So you know what the songs are going to be. And then just like if you were, if you were recording, you hear the click track, beep, beep, beep. And then you start. I have no play. problem with
0: that. I think that's just fine.
1: But then the audience is also hearing stuff so you're playing, the drums are live, the basses, or the, uh, the drums are live, the guitars are live, the vocals are live, but there's also all that stuff that is on the record, all the shimmering keyboard synthy stuff, mm-hmm. the sound effects, a little like, all that stuff. <laughs> um, and in some cases, and now I've seen this now for years, the bass is on the track there's either no bass player on stage or there's someone that appears like maybe they're playing the bass on a keyboard, but really the bass is in the on the computers. And so all that stuff of like the the low end information of the of the song, which mm. is like the big big part of what of how you physically respond to music. Right, the bass. It's just coming from the computer. And so when you're watching it as a layperson, It's like, there's the singer, he's jumping around and there's the, you know, guitar player and that's what I'm, and the drummer's there, but you're not aware of how much of the wash of music is, is, uh, is being, you know, like played for you, played for, played by computers. I was on this tour with this, this band uh, that was doing this and their monitor guy, I was talking to their monitor guy during a show one time and I was like, you know, the tracks, it just would make me feel really insecure to get up there and have and be reliant on it because if the computer's all crashed and the thing is I've been on this, I've been on tours like this. They have the computer that's doing it. They have the redundant computer that's doing it. Then they have the redundant, redundant computer. I mean, there are so many layers of redundancy to ensure that it never crashes. That's what's astonishing when something like this happens to Mariah Carey. It almost makes you feel like it's industrial sabotage.
0: I, that's well. That's you know. It's so funny that you say that, having not known about what's going on and not having read it. That's exactly what their their camp is accusing. I guess that the people who uh, NBC or whoever put on the show. That's what they're accusing them of. They're saying this was sabotage. This was some kind of intentional.
1: Thing. I mean how how weird. Well, I don't see, I mean, the question of that is like, who does it benefit? But, but I, I, even at a small scale, you know, not to be running tracks off of a, off of a, like one computer. Yeah. You know, it's gotta, it, you've gotta have tested this a hundred times. But this, this monitor guy had been in the music business for a long time. And he said he had been Duran Duran's front of house guy in the early eighties. And I, I looked it up. I know who the, he is and he was he toured with Duran Duran during all of the hip Duran Duran days. And in fact, he still kind of wears, even though he's a 55 year old guy, he wears his hair kind of in a little bit of a Duran Duran, Flock of Seagulls, hairspray way. <laughs> and he said, We used to run backing tracks off of two inch tape for Duran Duran concerts. Like we had real two inch tape machines. Uh, ampexes or whatever that we brought on tour with us and we would start the tracks, play the tape, and then the band would play along with the tape. And he said that we encountered real problems when we would go out on those super, super hot summer um, festival shows because the, at a certain temperature, the hot weather would actually stretch the tape. Really? Such that everything would be, the tracks would get slower and the pitch would slightly change (laughs) so that now all of a sudden none of the instruments were in tune with the backing tracks. And he was like, it used to, you know, it used to drive us crazy. And there was one show in particular where he said it was the, the intonation was so bad. And there, a lot of that stuff you can't tune. Like you couldn't tune your instruments to the tracks. You certainly couldn't do it as it was going down. He was like it was a real embarrassment and i was astonished to learn that that bands were playing to tape that far back and maybe you know maybe i shouldn't be but we're we're so far over the bridge now i, I went to bonnaroo one time and watched a band that was in a, that was even like a f- kind of folky band but the the bass was on tape and I couldn't watch it. I was like, hire a freaking bass player. However much money you're paying to have a guy run this on the computer, just pay a guy to play the bass. Hmm. I don't I don't see where having the bass on tape is... is, Look, what is
0: how is that an advantage for the trouble uh, it's going to yeah, cause? I don't see
1: that it's an advantage. And what's funny is, just p- prior to that, in the early 2000s, I did a, a sort of a stadium tour. And there was a there was a band that I saw several times during that tour who were famous at the time. Let's just call it that. They were, they were a big rock band in the year 2000. I leave it to your imagination (laughs) who they were, big rock band. And they were a four piece, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a bass player, a guitar player, a drummer and a lead guy. Mm -hmm. And they had another guitarist, on stage with them, behind a curtain. Really, and so standing on the side of the stage, here was this guy. He actually spent most of the show sitting on a stool, playing a guitar with his amplifier right next to him, mic'd, and he was playing all the interesting parts,
0: like the the solos or
1: the stuff that you know. Like here's here's the song: one, two, three, four, bow, now, 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 now. But there's a guitar going, Bow! you know like the one that's
0: doing the the cool stuff is behind a curtain he's behind a curtain
1: (laughs) and it was before computers were reliable enough that you could like year 2000 i don't think i would have i don't think anybody in the music business would have gotten on stage with a computer and tried to have it be a member of the band because they just crashed too much but they wanted this they wanted this extra music played but they didn't like the optics of having another member of the band because they they were they had a video on TV and they were known as these four guys and they just and uh, you don't they, s-
0: you won't say what what band it was oh it was some band i don't remember you don't remember oh, tell me num- tell me after the show
1: they had some numbers in their name it was it was during that era when bands had numbers in their name. Oh yeah, sure. You know, Blink One Eighty Two, Sum Forty One, Three Eleven, Right Seven Seven by Seventeen, <laughs> Eight by Eight by Ten, Eight by Four, <laughs> Yeah, Three by Five. Uh, and it was astonishing, and it was le- it was it was cause for lots of like laws because. Everybody on this, it's a festival stage, right? There are 10 bands playing. Every other band is just the people that you see on the stage. Right. And then this band comes out and they had a flashy show, but there's a guy sitting on a stool behind a curtain. It's like wizard of Oz level duplicity. It seemed like to us then, um, it was only a few years later that that guy behind the curtain was gone and it was just a, it was just a G three or like three G threes. Right. But so it's, you know, that kind of deception's always been part of, of putting on a big show. Um, There's a guy, the edge of U2, loves vintage effects pedals. Right. And a lot of people uh, using a vintage, using vintage effects pedals as part of your live rig is a, is a thing that it's, that's an industry that actually employs a lot of people because people are always coming up with pedal boards that you keep on the stage where you can click a button and in clicking that button, it routes the signal off stage to the actual vintage effects pedal Mm. in a case somewhere. And the signal goes through this vintage effects pedal. And the, what makes it crazy is that all the, all the sounds of vintage effects pedals have effectively been modeled by computers and vintage effects pedals themselves are very delicate very prone to break very unpredictable and when they heat up they sound differently than when they're cold and so forth and so on and sending the signal long distances through cable from a guitar to a pedal board to some pedals off stage to an amplifier every every inch of that cabling degrades the signal of the guitar so you you lose tone the entire But uh, there are a couple of musicians, and David Gilmore of Pink Floyd Mm -hmm. and uh, The Edge are two examples where they've spent lots and lots and lots and lots of money building these elaborate rack systems where all those pedals are actually there in huge racks. And my sense of The Edge is that he has probably a team. Let's say three people, I don't know this for sure, three people living under the stage. Whose job it is to maintain his room of vintage pedals and sounds and tones and and some of it is probably digital now, but they're down there, basically stepping on his stomp boxes for him. Really? Yeah, because the edge is out there. He's way out on the catwalk.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. And he's going
1: ba 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 there's somebody that's like stomping on or, you know, or clicking like, and now the the flanger comes in and now the delay, cause his delays are all, are all synced. Oh, They're very, all,
0: very, very tightly synced. Yeah.
1: You know? And so there's there are people whose exclusive job it is to, to be back there turning the levers and, and spinning the giant wheels so that the edges guitar sounds like it does. And that's not, you know, that's in a different category than just like, sure, sound reinforcement. There's a person at the soundboard moving faders and and broadcasting it and the guitar is going through compressors. I mean, there's a lot of magic, but this is someone who's who's part of the Edge's guitar train. You know, he's like yeah. actually also because you could say playing those effects is also playing an instrument in a way or it's an aspect of playing that instrument but as far as like mariah carey inarguably one of the great voices of our time if in that genre Mm -hmm. mariah is no longer i don't think doing elaborate dance shows nope
0: nope not at all
1: she's just standing there and belting it out yeah or or not belting it out, but in this case, she's doing this big show for New Year's Eve, and the whole point of the show is that it's not a concert. It's a it's a big event. There's a you know there's a puppet show beforehand, and there's a juggler <laughs> after. Yeah, and Mariah Carey is here, and she's being paid seven hundred fifty thousand dollars or a million five or something to stand up there and sing "God Bless America." Or whatever she was going to sing. And they're probably... Her camp are used to running tracks on everything she does. Because, I mean, just as The Edge has three people downstairs playing his pedals, the human voice can only go so far to sound super huge in a room. And if there's a ton of tracks going on and her records all have... And this is the other thing. All modern records in that genre are drenched in vocoder sound. Do you know what vocoders do?
0: The vocoder, isn't that the thing that it gives you that to share, do you believe in life after love thing where it it kind of keeps you in a certain note or r- note range or something, tuned tuned a certain way?
1: Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Uh, and that machine became... I mean, several several years ago became ubiquitous in R and B, so that when you hear an R and B artist that isn't vocoding, it really stands out, and it's used sometimes thicker, sometimes thinner, but you can always hear it, and it just takes you know it's it is changing the sine wave of the notes you're making to make them quote unquote you know, either in tune or, you know, and you can play a vocoder like an instrument too. Interesting.
0: But like if you, if you turn it up aggressively, then it'll make it jump in a, mm -hmm. in an unnatural. It sounds cool, I guess before it was all overused, but that's the thing. That's the thing. That's the same thing.
1: So I have no idea how much effect Mariah has on her albums that she feels like she can't get up there and do otherwise. But what, Astonishes me in a moment like that. And this is the thing where you feel like Mariah has been living in a world where she's divorced from the essence of what she does. And this is where, you know, like someone like Christina Aguilera or there there are other people in that world that you feel like maybe are a little bit closer to the ground that might have done something really differently in this moment. But the second that the stuff doesn't work and she's standing up there and she's like, are you guys fucking kidding me right now? Yeah. I'm standing up here in front of the world and your computers aren't working. Right. Or your, your,
0: your, your earpiece has failed or whatever her reason was.
1: Yeah. At that moment, what you do as an entertainer is you remember what you are there to do. And if it were me or if I could go back in time and advise her, an hour beforehand, if anything goes wrong, you wave your hand and you say, stop it. Like don't push another button. And then you stand up there and you do an acapella rendition of God bless America.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. Hey everybody. Sorry. Uh, the, you know, the sound system isn't working, but I've got a microphone and it's broadcasting to you. And so
0: but you have to think, but like, that's her, That's her thing. Like, her thing is, I am a singer. That's the thing that I do. I'm going to be on stage. I'm going to be singing. Like, in that case, I understand all the stuff that you explained about the backup tracks. Even that, you know, there wasn't, like, supposed to be a band up there with her. It was just her. You know, they weren't, like, they didn't have guys... Pretending to play the piano, or and it was just her. And I yeah, guess everybody she had some knew band. it was going
1: to be it was going to be computers. Everybody knew there would be
0: tracks. Yeah, and I don't. I'm fine with all of that. But you know, back to the comedian discussion. I like if if I went to see a comedian, and the uh, comedian B- was I'm up sorry there. To
1: interrupt. BTW, I'm pouring water here. Into the coffee machine, and I didn't want anybody in the background. I
0: think it was the urination. To think or I something.
1: was being some kind of Merlin man and peeing into a yeah.
0: coffee can. Okay, go ahead. Um, if you went and saw a comedian on stage and they were lip-syncing to their latest album, just yeah. doing the same jokes but just mouthing them, you'd say, "What? What is this? Why have I paid for this? Why is singing somehow different? Why is it accepted?" That some people, well, I remember I saw when I was living up in in Raleigh, Durham in in North Carolina, I went and saw a summer concert, like a late spring, early summer concert. It was Sting. And Annie Lennox opened for him. Oh, yeah. And he got up on stage super casual. And he's like, listen, I want to apologize. Like, my allergies are just going crazy here. He's like, I don't know how you people (laughs) deal with it. He's like, but, um, so I'm sorry if I don't sound great, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, Of course, he sounded great. He's Sting. Yeah. But, you know, like, I I don't think it ever occurred to Sting to use a a track that he's just going to go and lip sync to, you know? Annie Lennox belted it out with him. I mean, it's, it's just amazing that there seem to be these two kinds of classes of performers, the kind that would never use, uh, or, or, or unless there were some extenuating circumstance, but would never think about using that versus, the, and in other words, people with real voices versus the sort of manufactured pop studio people who go in, use the vocoder, and, and are made to sound amazing in the studio, but when it comes time for them to actually sing, they can't, they, they can't do that. But what they can do is they can put on a good show where they're dancing around and lip syncing. I had always thought Mariah Carey was in that first category of people with a really great voice who actually show up and sing.
1: Well, she, she absolutely is. And that's, that's what I mean about how she's forgotten something or she's, you know, she's lost her way. And and if she, I mean, she needed to go back to church basically, right? Like you're, it's new year's Eve. If the thing, if the thing breaks You remember who you are and you sing all Lang Syne and, and the world. And then you're a hero. You walk off stage and you're like, the computers broke down. I think they were sabotaged by NBC, whatever it was. I gave the people what they came for, which was straight up Mariah Carey. Um, But the thing is that she's forgotten that she's also playing to people like you and me. Like we, we, we didn't watch the show. She wasn't thinking of us as her audience. She's thinking of all the 22-year-old uh, girls out there who want to hear her really, like, blow it. You know, like, not blow it bad, but blow. blow. They want to hear the, the big show, you know, the big show. I don't, you know, I don't know. I used to have really strong feelings about this. I used to not like it when I would see indie rock bands and they had some part of their thing. But, you know, the comedian analogy, I think it wouldn't work for a comedian to lip sync their stuff. But I, I'm pretty sure that there are big comedians that tour where there's a laugh track. Yeah. That laughter is augmented by laughter over the
0: speakers. So you're sitting in the room, you hear laughter, you're encouraged to laugh more. Right.
1: And I think that's, I think that may be more common than we know in, in big sort of stadium comedy shows. Cause I've been to some stadium comedy shows where there isn't laughter in the speakers. And it's weird, right? I mean, I, I uh, when Flight of the Concords just toured, Flight of the Concords is hilarious. They're amazing. And yet when they're playing to, 12,000 people laughter just doesn't have the same uh, contagion that it does in a, in a 500 person club like laughter requires that sort of neighborliness because you don't want to be out there, be the one person in a giant grassy field going, ha 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 while everybody else is, (laughs) you know, right. Um, (laughs) And so (laughs) but of course Flight of the Concords are they're still they still think of themselves as a small a couple of guys from New Zealand just just making some fun. And um so they're not broadcasting laughter. Right. But they're hilarious and everyone in the place is loving it, but there's just that little bit of distance. And Eugene Merman opened the show, and Eugene's comedy is also extremely funny but like eugene plays on the edge of surreal sometimes or i mean his his comedy isn't always just like here's the joke everybody laugh here's the next joke like eugene's playing the role of himself and he's also you know it's like thought there's a lot of thinking that goes into appreciating eugene and watching eugene open for them you know he's landing his stuff he's performing it really well it's hilarious stuff and in a smaller room even a thousand person room he would be slaying and he was slaying but the perception of just kind of like i'm in a grassy field and i'm not hearing l- like raucous laughter yeah it makes you go oh these jokes aren't working and i talked to him after the show and he I, I didn't bring it up. I was just like, great show. And he was like,
0: yeah, it's just you're weird. Like, to- hey, it was weird echo chamber over there. <laughs> yeah. It's it's
1: weird to play these big rooms or these big, you know, certainly out in a field because you just don't get any, you don't get the feedback that mm-hmm. you're, that you, that you need to feel like you're doing a good job. And then when you think about like Steve Martin in the seventies was like headlining amphitheaters, you know, like he was playing for 20,000. I think I think if you look it up, Steve Martin was doing absolute stadium shows like bigger than journey, bigger than Led Zeppelin playing these massive, massive shows. And how is that going to feel? I mean, of course he was on cocaine because he's out there like, Hey, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> and I don't, I don't know what that sounds like. 50,000 people all laugh at once, but it's pretty weird. So, I mean, live shows are, I was thinking about it on the drive up here, a lot of times when you're in show business, you don't realize when, when things are as good as they're going to get. And, and I don't mean that in a way of like, well, that's as good as it's going to get. But, but there are a lot of times when you are. You're doing what you set out to do. And because of the nature of ambition, even in that moment, you're there saying, this is great. You know, this is great. I'm on the way. I'm on the way to the, you know, as soon as this is over, I'm going to make these changes. Right. And then I'm going to be on, I'm going to be more on the way to achieving the dream. And you don't realize like, no, 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 you, you did it. You're there. It really isn't going to get better than this. And that's not, that's not bad. You know, that's um, like you should, you should be, you should be happy and recognize that any further complication you add is just that it doesn't going to make it better. You know, if you, if you're a solo artist and you're playing to 1200 seat rooms, it's very hard to look around and say, you know, this 1200 seat room is, is the peak, right? This is where the pet shop boys play. Mm -hmm. Now, this is (laughs) where, um, this is where you are on your way up. And this is where you are on after your career has settled back down. And frankly, if you can play a 1200 seat room, and keep it the, you know, to play a 25,000 seater is like, I don't know whether that, I don't know if there are people that look back and say, I guess there, I guess there are plenty. And a lot of the reason that you can play a 1200 seat room 20 years after your career began is that you did play 25,000 seaters for a while.
0: Yeah. And now, now you're just, scaled down, but there's still enough of those people who knew about you to fill the smaller venue. Right. Right.
1: That's how it is. But from my perspective, if you could spend, if you could spend 10 years just playing 2,500 seaters, like the amount of money and the amount of other stuff, fame and whatnot that comes from an exponential, uh, you know, a, an exponential growth of that. I think it also brings with it an exponential amount of heartache and just the, the kind of struggle that would, that would make you sit in a room with people and say, well, we're going to have to be running like I'm going to be lip syncing or I'm, you know, I'm sure she wasn't lip syncing. I'm sure she was singing along with herself.
0: Mm. And so I'm not so, I'm not so
1: sure. I mean, her mic was live.
0: It was live, live when when she spoke, but well, then later in the second part, I need to get you. I need to get you this video so you can I'm really sure do a deep dive sure, into this. I'm
1: sure, I could see it, but if no, I in the tried. second half of it,
0: there was no, there was not even attempt to, because I always, I, I used to think that they were just straight out lip syncing, like like the way you you know a child might do in front of the mirror to their favorite song playing where they're not producing any sound they're just moving their mouth but then i found out that you guys uh actually sing up there and you're you're singing in time with the lip sync track but because it's a huge crowd and there's loud music and there's no way that your individual voice ever gets heard it's only the lip sync uh the only the real track that you guys are using up there that gets heard yeah but uh, what can you can you tell me a time when you might when you might rely on a pre-recorded vocal track your own pre-recorded vocal track and sing that and lip sync that Me? You. No. No. Is there any uh, circumstance where that you, you would do that? You're going to be on the Tonight show and right before you lost your voice show must go on but you can't make a sound. You can't make a sound. What happens? What do you do? Do you lip sync or do you call off the show? Your shot. This is your shot. Tonight's show. Finally, Johnny Carson is going to invite you over to the, <laughs> Johnny, to the chair. Johnny,
1: Johnny Carson is, has been exhumed.
0: Yes. Um. He's the only one that can host that show. Let's be honest.
1: Well, I mean, let me run you through that scenario. I can't talk. The guy is, I mean, Johnny doesn't know or care. The guy with the head, headset on is standing backstage and he's like, seriously? I mean, you know, let us know. We've got 15 minutes to to find another option. The, at that point, who's going to say, let's run, let's just play the, the tape. Like I don't have a manager.
2: Yeah.
1: It's not going to be my idea and it's not going to be their idea. If, if somebody came to me and said, look, we want you to be on top of the pops. We want you to lip sync to your track. And the whole band is, you know, you're just going to be up there pretending. I'd go, fuck
2: yeah. That (laughs) sounds incredible. Right.
1: Are you kidding me? That is amazing. Right. Because we'll get up there and we'll ham it up and we'll, you know, we'll clown around. And that was, that was fairly commonplace in the sixties to get up and lip sync your, your tune. So I got nothing against that as long as the lip syncing is acknowledged, but a situation where I'm going to get up and I just can't imagine a scenario because I'm, because I don't live in that world and I wouldn't be invited to that world. A wor- a world where my fans were unable to distinguish whether or not I was singing live or not. Yeah. <laughs> it would be, it would just be that my fans wouldn't re- would reject it. Right. And, and no one else would, I don't think anybody else would like it better. No, You know, people that aren't my fans aren't going to be like, wow, that particular vocal performance of cinnamon really sold me.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny. I mean, I was thinking when you were talking about the big stadiums and like um, Steve Martin, uh, I was thinking about trying to think of the biggest concert that I ever saw. And I saw a lot of smaller venue concerts. Um, When I was in college, I worked at, we had like an arena a little arena that where um it was an in, indoor they called it the arena and it was where a lot of acts came through that weren't huge 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 acts at the time uh like give you an example you remember extreme more than words of course like they played in there um
1: Gary Cherone
0: yes uh and Ooh. what was the what was the name of the band that Ted Nugent was in for a little while in the early nineties. Oh,
1: you're talking about damn Yankees.
0: Damn Yankees. They played, you know, so it was like that, that kind of, uh, (laughs) that kind of, kind of band. But the biggest one that I ever saw, I saw guns and roses play at what used to be called Joe Robbie stadium in Miami. I was upwards of 50,000 people on new year's Eve. And you know, it was so, these these guys, they were playing, it was a real rock and roll show, and they were playing, and they didn't sound just like the album, they were doing it different. You know, they were doing it to sort of have fun with it, and and it, there must be some aspect to this, though, where, especially if you're performing to a track, where it's the same thing every single night that you're out there playing, you're not even really singing, you're just making these sort of movements stomping around the stage in the same way pretending to sing how unfulfilling would that be very you're not even performing i could let alone actually performing the same song 20 times in a row i mean what is that got to be like
1: well guns N' roses as you know i have a friend in guns N' roses
0: and i did, I did not know that
1: well yeah i'm i'm pretty good I'm pretty good friends with Duff McKagan. I think I would, you know, we're related to one another.
0: Uh, Why do you say this? Like I had any idea.
1: Oh, we have never talked about this. No. Yeah. I, uh, I've known Duff for a long time. He's a Seattle guy and, uh, and, um, and like, you know, goes back in the Seattle music scene long before guns and roses so there are a lot of people here that were in he was you know played drums in the fastbacks or something back in the so there are a lot of people here who knew dove and then Duff started writing a column for the seattle weekly right about the time that i was writing a column for the seattle weekly and during that era uh early 2000 you know 10 ish late late 2000s early teens uh, the Seattle weekly had three regular columnists in the music section, me, Chris Nova, and Duff McKagan. And we were each writing a weekly column. Uh, Duff's was like, you know, the, the Duff's thoughts on life and the world. Chris was writing more specifically about political stuff. That's what he's very interested in. Then I was writing my column about whatever the fuck I, it occurred to me to write about it at 2am <laughs> the night before it was two. Right, of course. <laughs> And so I was at an event and Duff walked over and I was, this is, you know, I guess now half a dozen years ago. And he was like, Hey man, I just wanted to say, I love your column. It's really like a privilege to write beside you on the masthead. And I, and it was such a generous gesture, you Mm. know, like, wow, thank you so much for saying so. And then he didn't just come over and say that and then waltz off. He was like, we kept talking. Right. And it really quickly, I I'd heard about him for a long time and everybody really likes him and admires him. But in talking to him, I realized like, Oh, right. Here's a guy who's really smart, you know, just natively smart. And he's lived his whole life in rock and roll and punk rock where smart isn't really the number one thing that people look for you know nobody (laughs) nobody got ahead in rock and roll because they were smart you know and he was also like a bass player and he was a a heavy 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 partier from a young age right and so neither one of those things really are made easier by being smart you know nobody there aren't a lot of jokes about the super smart bass player and nor are there like you know like being a drug addict and being smart don't help one another either so I just got an initial, this, this kind of flash of insight of like, oh, wow, here's a curious mind and, and, uh, and a guy that's been through a lot and he's just naturally sort of smart and generous and like a kind person and everywhere he goes, he's assumed people just assume that he's a dumb, uh, drunk bass player. Right. And so he's so accustomed to being treated in a certain way, not not by the people in his immediate circle, but just by the world. Like, oh, here comes Duff McKing and uh, don't trip. <laughs> and so he really loved writing this column for the Seattle Weekly because it was a chance to show this other side of himself. And he, you know, he went through he he got his degree from Seattle University while he was on tour with Velvet Revolver. You know, he was doing his he would come back and go to class. At Seattle U and then back out on the road in Germany like he was really he's really like a multi-round multi-purpose guy so we started we struck up a friendship and We knew each other through writing, but then we also had all these friends in common in music and and when you make a friend That you've been living in their orbit already you've shared an orbit Then it's really easy all of a sudden to solidify that friendship with a lot of connections Cause you'll be standing at a, at event talking and then a person will walk over that knows you both. And the person will say, Oh, I didn't know you guys know each other. Oh yeah. How do, and then, and then all of a sudden, like it just, it's another, it's another route that connects you to, to everybody in a way, you know, everybody in that scene, the more, you know, one another, the, the more rooted everybody becomes. Mm-hmm. So fast forward a few years, uh, I'm backstage at a Slayer concert of course and duff is backstage at a slayer concert of course and he walks over and he goes hey cousin and i'm like hey cousin and he's like no i mean hey cousin and i'm like (laughs) i'm like is this some is this like rock and roll game now that we're all calling each other cousin or and he's like no i just found out we're cousins i was like how are we cousins (laughs) and he said my you know my brother married your brother's sister's sister or your brother's wife's sister i'm like we're barely cousins he's like no but we're related and he was so thrilled and of course i was like thrilled i can barely describe the process but my brother's wife's sister is married to his brother i guess and so that was just another like lol Mm -hmm. but you know he he and I text sometimes. I mean, it's uh, it's not just a That's so bizarre though. When I see you, I'll see you kind of thing. We stay in touch with each other. And I really admire him because of if you look at a picture of Guns and Roses in 1989 and you say which one of these guys is going to be fit and together and happy and uh, and fully alive and writing books. In 2015,
0: look at the pic- look at picture. Look at picture. I'm actually looking at one right now. Rose Roses"
1: in 1989. You are not going to single Duff McKagan out of that photograph. No.
0: And that's see, that's funny. That's when I saw them too. It was the New Year's Eve 89-90 turning 1990 that night? So this is this is the time period.
1: They look pretty thrashed. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. And and Duff looks among the most thrashed. <laughs> you know, he was. I mean, Matt Sorum had a stroke, but really. Yeah, but um, but Duff, I mean Duff could what could have could have died a thousand times mm-hmm. and didn't, and now you look at him and he looks like he's carved out of mahogany. He's just like <laughs> so. So anyway, I was at all by way of saying it, I was at the recent Guns and Roses concert, and it's a huge stadium show, and and you know Axel Rose God love him. I don't know how much he's. Art directing the show, but like uh, all the video stuff that's playing behind the band, a lot of the art direction is, you know, not very good, right? Like ACDC is pretty good about putting big video productions of, of like smiling skulls, spinning, playing cards and, and uh, women in bikinis, you know, all kind of video stuff. Yeah. It's part of. It's a pretty good part of an ACDC show. Guns N' Roses was trying to do it, and it was just like, "This seems weird. Who did you hire to do this? This is not very swell." But the band walks out on stage, and they are playing the shit out of their instruments. You know, Duff's out there playing his bass, just like he's in a club. And GNR has a a second guitar player now because. For whatever reason, they couldn't get Izzy Stratland. They couldn't arrive at a a contract with Izzy. It's too bad. It is too bad. But their other guitar player is a smoking guitar player. And they gave him lots of moments to shine, right? They tipped their hat to him over and over during the show. Gave him lots of featured moments. And it's sort of like at that level, they could have been up there just completely phoning it in, playing the tracks, just like snoozing their way through it. But a bunch of guys in their 50s that are having a really good time playing rock and and playing live rock. I mean, I didn't detect anything up there on the stage that wasn't being made by them on the stage. Right. And that includes right. Axel sitting down at the freaking piano. Yeah, and six, playing uh, November songs. Rain
0: or whatever, right? Yeah, and a yeah. lot
1: of other stuff. I mean, the only, the only flaw in that Guns N' Roses show was that I had willfully... Blocked out the fact that they ever made Use Your Illusion One and Two, and really had blocked out the fact that any other music had been made after Use Your Illusion One and Two. <laughs> I'm with
0: you on the second part,
1: but yeah, <laughs> you know. So I walked into the show like we're going to hear everything from Appetite to from Destruction right. and everything from GNR Lies, and then the then the lights are going to go off and they're come back and play November Rain for a for a uh, encore, and I'll already
0: be on the way to the party. <laughs> You'll be listening as you get into your yeah like, into your no, truck. Right. Whatever. <laughs>
1: but instead, it was like, yeah, they played like four songs from G from uh, Appetite for Destruction, and they played. I don't even think they played anything from. Maybe they played patience from GNR Lies, and then the rest was Use Your Illusion One and Two at, at, at all. Hmm. and i just was like oh there's a reason that i lost interest in the, the recorded music of uh, guns N' roses because it's like a bunch of ballads with no melodies mm-hmm. just piano they didn't soothing. even do one in a million i don't think they played one in a million no mm-hmm. i mean they played like mr brownstone and they yeah. played i mean they played like and when they did play those songs it was amazing but i don't want to sit here dan and take up your precious time giving you a review of a 2016. No, but I, that's, Guns this and Roses is exactly concert.
0: what I'm interested in. I see. I was a very big Guns N' Roses fan. That's why I learned to play guitar primarily. Mm-hmm. They, Maybe secondary to Zeppelin.
1: You know, at the time in that moment, right, rock and roll had lost its way. Everything mm-hmm. had a lot. There were a lot of synthesizers. People were playing in those Ingve Malmsteen oh, uh, Arpeggios scales. And all this weird yeah, scales. Yeah, just and- like the idea that the heavy metal and classical music were somehow supposed to be uh, uh, like some kind of symbiosis, and that music had become unlovable. And everyone from my community was turning toward Metallica, right? And deciding, like, well, I guess this is where metal lives now because nobody's playing hard rock anymore. And then GNR arrived, and they were playing you know in blues scale and they had rock attitude and they were tougher than Aerosmith had been in 75 and it was like thank you thank you rock has survived mm-hmm. and that was what made it so hard when grunge came and toppled the the garbage yeah because you wanted nirvana it felt like nirvana i mean wasn't they weren't culturally an extension of guns and roses But Guns N' Roses had all, in my estimation, had already done to hair metal what everyone credits Nirvana having done to hair metal. You know, in the, in the rock story, hair metal was this gross, bloated, creepy thing that survived right up until the moment that, that, uh, that the Nirvana record came out and smells like teen spirit hit the radio. And then there are all these stories, right. Of, of guys from winger or, um, <laughs> w- winger, you know, uh, <laughs> Nelson or yeah. whatever else walking into their record company offices because no one will return their phone calls all of a sudden. And they're marching in like, where's my royalty checker? Why, why where's my A&R rep? And there's one famous story. I don't remember who it was. But they walked into their, the offices at Capitol or something as their photograph was being taken down off the wall and replaced with a photograph of Alice Chain. Oh, no. Just like their photograph was leaning against the wall and the Alice Chains photograph was being, you know, situated where they had formerly been in the in the atrium of the label. I don't remember who told that story. I hope I'm not getting it wrong, but like there was that sea change feeling. And I think most rock music fans hated those hair metal bands at the time, but there was a feeling of like, well, that's just what we have to do. I guess that's where rock is. The, the, the famous precursor to um, Pearl Jam up here, Andrew Wood and malfunction, and what were they called? Uh, their big record was called Apple. They were. Oh, God. <sighs> I cannot. I, I, I'm increasingly worried that my um, that my medication, Dan, is mm. creating a problem in my memory.
0: I hope can't not, hope not
1: for me to not be able to remember Andrew Woods precursor band to uh, t- to Pearl Jam. Is kind of a bad sign.
0: Hmm. You know what I mean? I why? Yeah, I mean for you. I guess I've never heard of the uh,
1: Mother hey. Love Bone. I'm
0: sorry, Mother, Mother Love Bone. <laughs> okay, I know. I I know that band. I yeah. don't couldn't tell you there a single song they did, but I've heard of Mother Mother Love Bone.
1: So Mother Love Bone was the band from Seattle that was supposed to get big right before grunge happened. So Mother Love Bone included, um, inc- included like, two what guys I mean. from Pearl Jam. Um, I, never, it had, I never knew
0: that. It
1: had Stone Gossard, and it had Jeff Ament, but it Bruce also had-
0: Fairweather, Greg Gilmore, Andrew Wood. That's right. And Bruce Fairweather... Not off the top of my head. I'm looking it up.
1: Bruce Fairweather was also a, uh, you know, a big sort of local Seattle musician played in, you know, he was a, a well-known guy from around. And then Greg Gilmore was, had been in a band with Duff McKagan. Uh, Greg Gilmore was in a band called Skin Yard, which was like a huge, <laughs> like very influential band on me His i love skinyard
0: so funny
1: skinyard <laughs> what does that even mean and i'm talking about these are bands before grunge you know these are like late 80s bands but skinyard
0: was it's just like, like in the, like a uh, like screaming trees kind of time period right
1: yeah but they were you know they were like hard rock um like Punk. Hard hard metal punk. Or I don't you know. I don't know. Like Ten Minute Warning was a punk band, but they were Seattle-y. They were Seattle-y uh th- th- there was a different sound, right? But anyway, Mother Lovebone was the one that was about to get huge. And everybody here in town was like, they're gonna be the biggest thing. And The two guys in Mother Love Bone that ended up in Pearl Jam, Stone Gossard and uh, Jeff Ament, they had been a band called Green River with Mark Arm and Steve Turner who became Mudhoney. So (laughs) there's no, there is no different, there's no bigger gap between two bands than there is between Mudhoney and Pearl Jam. You know what I mean? Like Mudhoney and Pearl Jam just don't sound anything alike and their attitudes aren't anything alike. Yeah their approach to the, to to life are very different, but, but the two guys from the one band and the two guys from the other band used to be in a band together. Like that's this weird thing about Seattle. But so mother Lovebone was going to be huge. And the thing about mother love bone is they're all wearing, they're a hair metal band. Mm. They were a Seattle version of it. They were wearing velvet Paisley floppy hats. Mm -hmm. Um, and basketball shorts, but they were a hair metal band and Andrew Wood died of a heroin overdose. And he was like the, he was the star child of the Seattle music scene. And when he died, it was a, it was a, a, a a rare moment because I think if mother love bone had gotten big first like the first Seattle band to I oh my god I can't believe I'm doing this again. But the first Seattle band to have a hit on the radio was Allison in Chains. Mm. They had that song hi 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 yeah. I, 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 yeah. I'm the man, man in, the, in box. the box. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and it was like wow, this is cool to hear it on the radio, to hear it like really on on uh on big radio. Yeah and to know that it was kind of coming from downtown and mother love bone. Had they kind of jumped up at that moment too with their tunes, I think we would have thought of grunge and we would be talking about grunge now in a very different way. It would have been reinforced that grunge was, you know, there were a little bit more beards. It was a little bit rougher around the edges, but it was still an extension and evolution of hair metal. And it was only that Mother Lovebone didn't survive that loss that opened up kind of room for Nirvana to be the, the thing that happened biggest. And that changed. I mean, because Soundgarden could have been hair metal. They could have pretended to be an extension of hair metal. Uh, Pearl Jam made no attempt to to not be except that by that point in time you wore ripped jeans, right. but Pearl jam could have been a hair metal band, but I, I got off on that thread because I wanted, I always wanted it to be acknowledged that the bands that put the bands that put that drove a stake into the heart of hair metal were actually guns and roses and Jane's addiction. And it's never remembered that way now. Mm. It's like, oh, there was hair metal, hair metal, hair metal, and then Nirvana. It's like, no, no, no. There was hair metal, hair metal, and then Guns N' Roses brought, like, blues and drugs back into rock, and Jane's Addiction made it weird and fucked up and scary. (laughs) And both, if you look at the fashion, if you look at, at the first, earliest pictures of Guns N' Roses... (laughs) And the earliest pictures of Jane's Addiction, they both have tons of hairspray in their hair. But the music was, the music was more freaky. And the later pictures, you know, by 1990, both of those bands had become more, more tripped out. Right. And that I think was what paved the way for. It would have paved the way for Mother Love Bone. It did pave the way for Allison Chains and Soundgarden, and and it allowed for bands like Mudhoney and Nirvana to even, you know, to even have a somebody at a record company that was like, "Huh? Well, if Jane's Addiction worked, maybe
0: <laughs> these weirdos, yeah, you
1: know,
0: there not something to that.
1: I don't know. I mean, I can't go back and write the rewrite the history books, Dan." Música e